And so, the young people of America prepare for bed, ready for the coming school year, sort of. But there is one more thing they must see. The world premiere of the music video from Darkwing Duck! Follow me to a place where incredible feats are routine every hour or so. Where enchantment runs rampant, yes, wild in the streets. Open sesame. Here we go! Welcome back to Disney Marvels for week of September 13th, 2020. This is episode 101. Disney Marvels, the show about Disney, Marvel, Lucasfilm, Muppets, Pixar, 20th Century, the parks, and much, much more. If it has to do with Disney, it's fair game. I'm your host, Matthew Graken. Hey, thank you again. Episode 101. Thank you for everyone who's reached out. Fans, listeners, family, friends, former people that have been uh, former guests on this show. It's again, I can't thank you enough for being part of this one way or another. And um, it, it means a lot to me that, you know, the, your congratulations and um, just the, the well wishes, uh, the appreciation really means a lot. And thank you. I hope you enjoy this week. This week, part two of the Disney Afternoon with Tad Stone talking about his time with Disney Animation, even Imagineering. Um, some great stories that he shared with us. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Tad. And uh, I, I think it was uh, you, you'll get some spectacular stuff out of it. So we'll be right back with Tad Stone after these messages and words from our friends and sponsors. Hey guys, it's Kyler Pope from the Disney Theme Park Show The Second. I just wanted to tell you about my great podcast, The Disney Theme Park Show The Second, where I talk to wonderful guests such as Matthew Gregan about all things Disney. I am available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, and Radio Public as of now, and I hope you guys have a magical day. And now, on with the show. mentioned before how important the Disney afternoon is to television, not just to me, but to so many other people and just television history in general. Today, I have someone. He is the terror that writes in the night. He is the producer of many television shows. He is the one, the only Tad Stone. Tad, thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here with you, sort of, <laughs> virtually. <laughs> Virtually, as I was talking to somebody else, I was on someone else's show saying how, you know, imagine in Wall-E, people talking and communicating with each other virtually and not in person. Who would ever have thought that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you mean, wait a minute, is this a whole big marketing scheme by Disney? No, For a Wall-E sequel? No. Oh, my God. They would the never do such a they thing. they won't go to. No. Well, that that's Pixar. That's all you know. Therein, that's uh, that's that's it's their all Disney. Yeah, now it is. <laughs> now it is. Um, yeah. Speaking of the the Pixar and, and Disney and stuff, from my understanding, you grew up in the Burbank area. Yeah, 
In so, fact, I was literally born across the street from the studio at St. Joseph's Hospital. Wow. So I was, depending on the, and the early days, uh, at the early hours of the morning, I guess the shadow of the studio probably hit my window. That's something else. So did that influence you in any sorts of ways growing up that, you know, here you were just steps away from all the, I mean, it wasn't even just Disney studios. A bunch of them were in that area at the time. Um, and, yeah, and uh, no, it, I actually had a lot of connections to Disney and then that uh, one, because my mom worked at St. Joe's um, as a, in administration and uh, there would be like, I remember Christmas charity programs and things like that. And uh, often Disney guys would come over and uh, Burbank would have a carnival uptown. And I remember at least twice, once at the hospital auditorium for a Christmas show, and then at a summer carnival up in Burbank, or in the, you know, not, I can't say uptown, toward the foothills anyway, Burbank, uh, Ducky Nash had a ventriloquist act that he'd do with Donald Duck. And uh, so I saw that a couple of times. And then even more so, my dad worked for Carnation Company. and because they had the deal with Disneyland, their company picnic, their yearly company picnic was at Disneyland. And again, I was born in 52, uh, so the early, early days of Disneyland. But right about where the Pirates of the Caribbean sit now in Anaheim was literally a park with just with mowed grass and some picnic tables. Right. And right. I remember going... It was just it outside was, the berm there. Yeah. Um, the yeah, I mean, just I wasn't even much of a berm at that time. Uh, I guess the railroad would have. Yeah, we would have been on yeah. the outside of the railroad crossing the tracks going to the park. Uh, but I remember they they pitched a big tent and the Golden Horseshoe Review put on a show for us there. I remember Wally Bogue spitting out teeth famously. Oh, wow. That was one of his bits. Um and then they played bingo there. And it didn't occur to me as a kid because I was literally, you know, a little tiny kid. Uh, but it's like, wait, you're playing bingo when Disneyland is right there. Yeah. I mean, literally right there. It's like it's like less than 100 feet away and you're playing B11. <laughs> you know, I can smell the churros. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so anyway, because of that, we went to Disneyland as I was growing up once a year. My dad had wanted to be a cartoonist, but he came out of college in the depression and basically you took any job you could get. Right. He never, you know, was able to follow that up. Uh, but he had lots of, you know, art books and drawing books and, and not just, you know, fine art stuff. It was literally cartooning stuff. And uh, some of those were the early books on animation. And uh, so that was always in my blood early on. We went to Disney, uh, Disneyland, and uh, they had, I remember we bought the original, the Bob Thomas book, The Art of Animation, which was themed around Sleeping Beauty, but took you through the steps of animation. And you bought flip books. You know, you bought, you know, how many people bought cells for like two bucks and then. Yeah. And they just got destroyed instead of being worth hundreds of dollars. Uh, but I just love that. And, of course, the Disneyland television show, 
uh, Walt would go behind the scenes every once in a while and show tricks of the trade of animation and all that. And I was fascinated by all that stuff. So uh, it was something I wanted to do, you know, from the get go. And to think that growing up, that was just down the street, you know, more or less for you. you yeah, know. pretty much. Yeah, so I so Disney was a part of the community. Yeah. At least for a kid in that some of those people would show up, you know, at various events um, more so than Warner Brothers, which was arguably closer to my house. And I remember uh, Columbia Ranch, which is now branch. It it's a couple blocks of back lot. lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that was where they filmed Circus Boy with Mickey Dolenz. Uh, you'd have to uh, Google that for most people. Anyway, yeah. now there's a Vons and a, and a bunch of uh, apartments there. But there used oh. to be this big vacant piece of land. And um, that's where they would film. And we'd go and catch lizards there. Um, that was where they filmed exterior scenes. I mean, it wasn't studio property they just would use some of that but the ranch is still there i mean it's burned several times uh and i was living across the street from it one of the times it burned uh and now that's where warner brothers animation is located i was gonna say around that area too or i think just the other side of the hills where uh mash was filmed and hogan's heroes and a bunch of those other uh mash is mash is actually closer to where i am now i'm in simi valley mash was filmed in the agora hills which also routinely burned down. In fact, the mash set burned down a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, that's a shame. Uh, one, another one of my favorite shows growing up. Um, but uh, yeah, so you went there. And so how did you get into the Disney company? I mean, you, you've always been on the footstep of it. And you, you've been kind of, you know, progressing your way towards there. But how did you finally get the, the golden ticket to join the company? Um, when I was growing up, again, I, I loved animation, uh, discovered Marvel comics very early on and thought, well, I may even be a comic book artist and writer. Good move. Uh, and, uh, when I was in high school and and about to go to college, I felt like, well, I really would want to go into animation, but the only place that does full animation is Disney, and they've got the, their guys. They've still got the guys that started with Walt. Um, so, I don't know, maybe I'll do comics. So that was my mindset going into college. Um, in college, uh, when I was a junior, was when I met her, uh, a girlfriend of mine, who happens to now be my wife, uh, her sweet mate. Yeah, her sweet mate was Tori Atencio, who's now a uh, uh, an interior designer, I believe, at Imagineering. Uh, her father was ex Atencio, a le- famous layout guy, also famous over at Imagineering. Worked with Ward Haunted Kimball. Mansion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, because of her connection of her father, she knew that there was a training program at Disney. And once I was only an art major for freshman year and then my English teachers wanted me to move to English uh, because of my writing and I was torn and then there was a new uh, major called humanities that sounded like oh you can do both strangely didn't work out that way I ended up not taking a single writing course and almost all my art courses were three-dimensional I became a, a TA in ceramics in fact I was 
throwing pots and all that, which did help out later because I was showing some of my old stuff and Tori looked at it and she said, and she knew my cartooning work just from, you know, around school. Uh, she said, you should apply at Disney. I went, what do you mean at Disney? She goes, well, they have this training program now. Uh, and she knew the name of the guy in charge of the training program because it's hard to forget his name. His name was Donald Duckwall. Uh, he claimed he had the name first. Uh, anyway, I got the number. I called for information and they assumed I wanted an appointment. So I had, as I recall, about a week to create a portfolio of art in my senior year, having not been an art major since freshman year. When you. Um, luckily, here's where that ceramics teacher thing falls in. Uh, the head of the art department took a sabbatical that year, and the ceramics teacher was the acting head of the art department. And when wow. I told him what was up, he said, by all means, I'll tell the teachers you can sit in on the life drawing classes and basically so I could get a portfolio together uh, in quick time. Uh, so I showed my stuff. Um, they needed a few more sketches. They needed more action sketches. Uh, I thought they now once I got in, I realized that sometimes people came back like six months later for a second appointment. I thought they wanted it immediately. Maybe they did because there was a review board meeting coming up. Um, so I spent that weekend uh, drawing off the television, off uh, sports events, mm -hmm. uh, cheating a bit with, well, I was never a sports guy, but the other guys in the hall had Sports Illustrated magazines, so I'd you know pull some great poses out of there. But just do real quick sketches. And strangely enough, they had, and this is before VCRs, you couldn't stop things and freeze frame and stuff like that yeah but the idea of me drawing from my life off the tv just hadn't occurred to them and it became something that they would tell uh potential trainees uh anyway i surprisingly was accepted which was then basically spent eight weeks doing a personal test uh with eric larson um one of the nine old men and uh Thankfully, I knew a lot about animation because the idea if you knew nothing and you're kind of trying to learn animation while doing the test that will determine your fate could be a little, you know, crazy making. Right, uh, right. Anyway, I survived both the review boards and uh, the review board was actually made up of what was left of the nine old men at the studio plus Ken Anderson, Claude Coates would come over, I think think sometimes um anyway some some guys from various departments and to look at stuff um so it was that's how i got in and then at features you instantly became an in-betweener so again all the work was done at the studio so you learned animation and i was terrible at in-betweening almost got fired because of my oh, no. what a well, different thankfully you didn't to have yeah yeah um Anyway, the, when people say, oh, how do you get an animation? I say, well, you fall in love with a girl. <laughs> you end up marrying her. She has to be connected to Disney. No. Everybody got in different ways. Of, that was before CalArts. Isn't this became, an upcoming Tom Hanks movie? <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, anyway, so that's how I, it was a confluence of influences and people I knew and just hearing that there was a possibility there 
And uh, I don't know what I would have done, frankly, if I hadn't heard about that. So. Eric Larson, you said specifically got to, to he, um, he kind of. Eric you was out. the train. Yeah, Eric. Eric Larson was the training program. He sat in his office. There were two bigger offices at the end of the hall. Um, and that's where the trainees would be. And it wasn't like there was a big class of trainees. It was like I was the only one who came in at that review board. Um, then the next one had, like I say, Glenn made it. And then there were other people who made it and then didn't last and or there for a while. So that was your office for a while, even after you did that. But basically, you'd be doing drawings. You take them into Eric uh and he'd go over them with you you know my regret and i always i have lots of regrets but it's i always have to tell myself well it kind of worked out so you did okay but because i knew a lot of the basis of animation i i didn't spend as much time with eric as as in hindsight i should have right in fact with any of those guys um because I always had this thing, I don't want to bother them, and uh, it's a professional thing, we shouldn't do it. And I remember when Milk Call left, and everybody was getting him to sign the books, and I kind of made a joke out of it, but I didn't have him sign the book, and it was like, yeah, I, I didn't establish relationships with all that. The most I learned from animation was, or at least a more sophisticated you know, version of animation, was from Frank Thomas through Ron Clemens because Ron and I shared an office. And Ron, everybody knows he's a director and writer of Little Mermaid and mm -hmm. Aladdin and Moana and everything in between. Um, Ron was, had done a personal test that showed at the same time as mine's second one, and it was Cruella DeVille. And it, the animators commented that they thought it was good enough to have been in the original film. That was not an exaggeration. It was amazing that wow. it could have been, um, you know, it, it would have fit right in. You know, it might have been a touch broader than she would have been, but it, it was incredible. Anyway, so Ron was, Frank Thomas immediately snatched up Ron to be working with him. Um, so Ron would come back from a meeting with Frank and then I would just hit him with 20 questions and all that. And he would review everything, which he didn't mind because he says, well, it kind of helps set it in my mind. Right. Uh, and uh, so a lot of again, a lot of it was secondhand through Ron. But it, it still had to have been something to be around the these people that work directly with Walt. Um, and just oh, yeah. the, that history. I mean, these people started transformed animation as anyone knew it and uh you know working on snow white and uh jungle book and all these other amazing amazing films in hindsight now amazing films back then you know they, they were hoping that they would bring in five bucks uh sometimes yeah. well in uh i a few years later i was moved over to um wed now known as imagineering and I spent a good nine months in like an eight by 12 office with Ward Kimball, just he and I. And working wow. with Ward was like working with a time machine because everything was fresh from him, from being, you know, how he, how to build a go-kart with a steering wheel as a little kid to wartime era stuff with Walt. It was the one time that I wish I'd kept a diary, but I had a, a new little boy. So it wasn't like, 
I come home and, and say, sorry, son, I can't hug you. I have to write down my experiences with Ward Kimball. Uh, <laughs> so it was, you know, I have to remember stuff, but that was great. Let me touch on that. And since you brought it up, so what, um, what did you work on when you were over at WED slash Imagineering? Um, I'm not sure they knew what to do with me over in animation. And one of the things I had done was I wrote and, and storyboarded and produced an educational film called Health and Alcohol Abuse. And because I did a good job on that and it was had an educational thing, they said, well, we've got this quasi-educational thing going on at Imagineering. Let's send you over there. Uh -huh. uh, so I went over and my... And, helping out on on little things here and there but my three major projects was the world of motion ride uh ward kimball and i did uh i guess mark davis had been on it originally uh because we had some it was a series of scenes it's no longer there you know done in pirates of the carrot caribbean type technology um anyway i did that with him and then about the time that goes to get done, they move me with Tim Delaney uh, onto the Space Pavilion. You'll you'll notice there's no Space Pavilion at Epcot. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, we now, spent not that one. Yeah, yeah, there we spent a good portion of the time we were on it unselling people from what had been done before, because that's when we le I learned the term eyewash, where you'd have these incredible painters. Uh, Herb Ryman, and, and I think he might have done the main one. But anyway, they do just this fantastic painting of this building, and you talk about it. And they do these incredible paintings that would just be these incredible pieces of artwork, and then somebody would talk about how great the pavilion was going to be. Um, and it was all talk and visuals. And then when you go into work at it, the space pavilion had been painted as this giant ball with a pylon next to it um and the idea was you know you had 360 theaters someone said what if you do the 360 theater vertically and the whole building was supposed to rotate for i don't know to, to change your feeling of gravity which didn't quite work but um so we got into it to start, and they had scripts in the show, and I met science fiction writer Joe Haldeman, who's a friend of mine now. Um, we looked at it, and we said, okay. One, the engineers said, to get it up to speed, just to get moving, because you're moving concrete and steel, will take eight minutes, which is as long as the show is. No. <laughs> so it's like, that makes no sense. And talk about breakdowns um you yeah. know that what could that would happen and then we just said on the inside you got in you're inside the sphere and you're looking across at the audience on the other side the circle is going vertically in between you and um when you looked at the screen they would draw these you know the again the eyewash had these planets and galaxies out there and i said well if you're looking sideways at a screen from this point of view, you're not going to see a circle. You'll see an oval. Mm -hmm. And I said, because it's curved, you're going to see a curved oval. So it's pretty much the planet's going to look like a banana in space. And Walt always said, 
you have to accept some seats with a not the best point of view. But the way we mapped it out and looked, we said there were more seats with a bad point of view than there were a good seat. And then right. down at the bottom, you're supposed to be looking down at the captain and crew, which would be autom- you know, animatronic figures. So we spent a lot of time. Uh, they shot a test footage. Um, and uh, the, the brightest part of the whole experience was I got to meet George Lucas. We had a lunch in, in a conference room, you know, with all the planners. And Tim and I were the youngest guys, you know, there. Everybody else were, you know, the veterans and Ron Miller, the you know, the head of the company. And, and uh, anyway, I happened to sit exactly across from George Lucas. And I looked at him. We were having fried chicken. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, my friends in animation would kill me if I didn't ask you about Star Wars. Uh, and I think this was before empire would be my guess um anyway he explained to me there were nine pictures <laughs> nine mm-hmm. stories uh which he later denied for a while um and that nobody would like the first three <laughs> and it was like why and he said well because the first three will be like this political drama you know how things get going and all that and uh you know, later, years later, obviously, I thought, you know, it's it's your story to tell. If you think nobody's going to like the first three, why don't you tell a different story? Change it <laughs> up know? a bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was interesting. Um, but the other important thing is George lived up in the San Francisco area, still does. Um, uh, Kim, Tim Delaney, I think, had a girlfriend up there. Anyway, he'd be commuting to San Francisco and he ended up on the shuttle flight next to George Lucas as George is coming down for another meeting. And so Tim has the chance to basically say, okay, here's what we're up against. And he goes through the banana planets and the stars and all of that. And, uh, you know, George helped unsell them. And then we could get started after that on, okay, what could this space pavilion be? And what that quickly ran into was every... Epcot was all about the future mm-hmm. and every pavilion kind of their last act tended to be set in space. Uh, more importantly than that, they made a decision early on that instead of having lands like Disneyland, they would have these pavilions. And instead of breaking up the pavilions into different that could be sponsored by different companies, they needed each of those pavilions to be sponsored by one company, which immediately cut down the number of people you could get to invest. Right. They not only had to be a big company, they had to have, you know, $35, $40 million that they could just blow on PR kind of stuff. Um, there were no space companies that was that were that big no. and could spare the money to do that kind of you know, PR stuff. Um, so that just ended up dissolving. And that's when I finished out my time with Tony Baxter and uh, Barry Braverman and Tom Morris on the Imagination Pavilion. And, you know, was in Dreamfinder Figment had already been created. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were still fleshing out personalities and what it could be in, in the whole pavilion. And I was on that through the sale to Kodak. And uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Big pigment person. Originally, 
government was actually blue-green until the Sherman brothers came in and did a song and they wanted to, they used purple pigment to describe his color. And I said, well, he's not purple. And they said, well, you got to go for the alliteration, the scanning. I go, well, blue-green pigment, purple pigment, still has the same number of syllables, but, yeah. you know, I was being silly and they won because, you know, they were the Sherman brothers. Well, uh, they, they and they had this great song. song. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so uh, that's, those are my few accomplishments. I was then sent back to the studio. I was supposed to be in charge of these Epcot documentaries. Each documentary would be on the theme of the pavilion to be run in prime time on networks. <clears throat> and basically the company was living in a world that had long passed, meaning a world where networks were begging Walt to do anything. The right. new world was saying, literally, we have our own news departments to do low rated documentaries. And this is in the middle of our new television season. We're not going to pull off our brand new shows. We're trying to get established to put on a documentary about the land. The uh, thing I did when I was on the project was changed it to four documentaries uh, and instead of um, being on the subject matter of each pavilion, it was uh, future human, future home, future city, future earth. And each one we're talking about the future of the human body from exoskeletons, prosthetics, cloning, whatever science fiction comic, you know, I could do uh, future home. Someday we'll have computers in our homes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, that was just at the beginning, and a lot of that stuff that we made gags about, we do. Yeah, uh, 1000. And then the only problem, and I never had to solve it, uh, Future City was about transportation and, and how to organize a city and dome cities, undersea cities, whatever. Uh, was Future Earth, everything looked really grim because of <laughs> overpopulation, and that was even before people worried about climate change. So um, thankfully I never had to do that. Um, but uh, that was the end of my, you know, Imagineering association. Right, right. So we're in, okay, so obviously that ended. Where do you go from there? Well, I started in, again, I started feature animation on the original Rescuers, uh, got up to assistant animator, Moved into story on Fox and Hound. I don't have a credit, although the stupid worm got a credit. Um, what? And, that's uh, a, that's a nice picture. I, I, it's underrated, I think. The, oh, no. I mean, I mean, we go into it. At one point, it was, I think, much better than what it was. And then they kept messing with it, but uh, lost a lot of the emotion. The, uh, But I knew at, back then, that was before everybody got credits. There was only a few cards full of credits. Right. And I knew I probably wouldn't get a credit because all my work had been done before I left for Imagineering. Um, and that's when the directors changed from Willie Ryderman to Art Stevens or Rick Rich, Ted Berman. Um, you know, so I was told, well, you're not going to be getting a credit. And I was kind of fine with that because I expected it. Right. Until I found out that they were giving credit to Squeaks the Worm as himself. Because they thought it was a fun gag because he was a sound effect that they would do yeah. it. And it was like, you know, we're just talking about a little bit of writing on a on a card. <laughs> you could slip yeah, yeah, my name. Come in, on. You know? um, that all changed, you know, with, with uh, 
Black Cauldron, when that began the era of modern credits that everybody and their babies get credits. Yeah. Um, yeah, because anyway, so that's what I had done. It features we've been over my imagineering stuff, came back after those documentaries. I helped out in a general sense in the live action television on their various fantasy projects. I worked on the Donald's 50th anniversary with Dick Van Dyke. Um, there was a good year and a half that I always say, oh, Disney should have fired me. I was doing nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was doing stuff, but nothing that that really, you know, if they if if I had to talk to an accountant to describe what I was doing, I'd be up a creek. Uh, anyway, I came back and uh, to feature animation. And the problem was whenever they moved me, you know, and I'd been there long enough that I would get like a little bump in pay. So now my pay was higher, but they didn't have an easy place to slot me in. Just the nature of the business. You have a story team. You don't suddenly say, hey, remember Tad? Let's bring him back in and put him on this. And he's, oh, he's going to be paid more than you guys. Yeah. Um, so they said they're going to have to bump me down. But instead, that was going to happen. It was like, you know, what was I going to do? Yeah. Uh, instead, they had a, the people over in licensing had a project or potential projects. Um, they knew they their problem was feature animation. The films came out every four or five years. The department, when I showed up, was, I thought it was 65 people without ink and paint. The reason I've been told it was actually just 55 people. So that's how small this department was that Walt created that were doing these feature films. Right. Uh, anyway, the, you know, uh, they still wanted to sell toys. And instead of waiting every four years and for re-releases, which, you know, don't create the buzz that a new project does. They knew they had to be in TV some way. So they were looking at maybe making television specials. So I went to this meeting uh, with this group from licensing. Uh, one of the people there was the head of Disneyland Records, Gary Kreisel, who, working with Jim Megan actually, um, really recreated the records from a nothing part of the division to this powerhouse. And it was because they actually created new content for kids yeah uh, going quackers and partners and you know mickey donald and goofy you know basically they did you know fun songs with disney characters uh anyway so they were part of this meeting at least gary was i believe uh and they said well we've got a couple of projects we're just looking for half hour ideas we do have one in europe uh sport goofy is a huge character for soccer you know we could do something with that. That would be great. So, and there was, you know, another writer there and all that. I went away and worked, you know, we, we used to do storyboards literally on giant bulletin boards of, they were like four by eight feet long. And, uh, you just, you'd literally be pinning. You've seen them in the background of every yeah. behind the scenes feature. Uh, you pin up your drawings. Well, what I did is I had an animation paper and I just drew in, in, you know, ink and marker, uh, just kind of story. Sometimes it was a single character, just scenes on a piece of animation paper and just pin those up so I could tell the story. And I did uh, a presentation called Mickey and the Space Pirates. And then I did one with Sport Goofy. And the premise was 
the Huey, Dewey, and Louie are in a, on a soccer team, ragtag soccer team. Their coach is goofy. Um, and to get, you know, to help the league or something, uh, they need a trophy. And Uncle Scrooge said, oh, there's something in the money bin that you could have. This kind of goes against the lore that Scrooge knows everything about everything in the money bin. Right. There's this trophy, and they take it. He says they have it. And it's like it turns out to be hugely <laughs> you know, priceless or whatever. Uh, they, but he can't take it back. He has to win it back. So Scrooge becomes the sponsor of the team. So this was not a precursor to DuckTales in a direct way. It was just all of us looking at the same source material, which was Carl Barks. And, you know, I grew up with those comics and all that. Uh, so anyway... Next meeting was called. I came in. The other writer just had like log lines because he was their staff guy who was working on many projects. And he just turned them over and put them face down because I had these full color storyboards. And I went through Mickey and the Space Pirates and then, you know, Sport Goofy. And they were blown away. And it really impressed them uh, that I was able to come up with this stuff that I was both an artist and a writer. Uh, and I end up doing a whole board on Sport Goofy. Later on, I was taken over by Daryl Van Sitters, uh, who worked with a lot of names we know now, like Chris Buck, Joe Ramft, Mike Giamo, who's art director on Frozen, Chris Buck, who director Frozen. Joe mm -hmm. Ramft, obviously, was, was the heart of Pixar. Um, anyway, that they took it over, and I basically backed off because they were supposed to start learning to work on the team. They had actually worked on little animated pieces I had done for my Epcot specials. We put that animation into work uh, and then tied them together in a short subject called Fun with Mr. Future. Anyway, here they are again. They kind of took out a lot of the heart and story and made it more gags. Um, right. And then that dissolved. And um, later on, it was revisited by features and uh, with advice by Ward Kimball. And they rewrote it, reconcocted it and put it out as a television special, which is very funny because it was came out the year before DuckTales and I got called into the boss's office and they were like, they really wanted to be mad at me because there was my name under story. It was Tad Stones and Joe Rampton, I, you know, whoever the third guy was. Um, and I said, oh, I forgot that was on or something, you know, and I'm just up because it's like, yeah. I didn't have anything to do with this, getting this on the air. I wasn't, and they were really upset that this, as far as they're concerned, could blow the whole DuckTales thing because it wasn't a DuckTales story. It didn't have the adventure parts in it. It had lots of Beagle Boys and a lot of just gags, but not the kind of stuff they wanted into DuckTales. But it's like, ultimately, they couldn't blame me, but it was, it was like a fun meeting for me <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> They really wanted to, but they couldn't. And, you know, we liked it, but we, he shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so that project, when it came time, when Michael Eisner came to the company, Michael Eisner started at, at TV animation and um, at ABC, children's programming. Um, he knew animation had to, I'm sure he had early meetings with licensing and they said, we really wanted to get. We have to find a way to, to get into television. Um, it was important to him in that the Sunday of his first week at the company, 
um, he, I mean, following his first week, uh, yeah. he had a meeting at his house and it was like 10 people and the guys from licensing all remembered me from those presentations I had done years earlier and how fast I'd come up with stuff and I was creative and, and they liked working with me. So that's why I was there at the original meeting for TV animation. In fact, I pulled out making the space pirates. Uh, Frank Wells was there too. And they loved what they were seeing, but they like said, it was Mickey's too important, too precious. We have to make sure we can do this. Well, they can't mm -hmm. be our first projects, but you know, let's hang on to that. Um, and famously, one of the things he pitched at the meetings, his kids had just gone to summer camp and all they could come back, they were totally fixated on this new candy at the time called gummy bears. He says, I swear you do a, sh a show called gummy bears and it's going to be a huge hit. So <laughs> I went back to wherever I think random development and uh, I was actually thinking of leaving the company. And uh, I thought, what if I could freelance storyboard? and come close to my current salary and then I can like write science fiction short stories or something for my soul or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I happened to see Michael Webster who was head of the division at that point, TV animation. And uh, he said, Oh, you don't want to freelance. Why don't you come visit us? So I show up at, at the studio, which was only a couple of, you know, hallways long and uh, off lot. And he's kind of introducing me around. Yeah, Tad may be coming over here or Tad'll be coming over here. And it's like, I don't know why he didn't say anything, but it would seem awkward at the time. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, they, I ended up at t TV animation that way. Actually, technically in management as creative manager and uh, coming up with show ideas. I was actually supposed to be bringing writers from the outside, but I didn't know any writers from the outside because... I've been, you know, sequestered in Disney for years. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so we had a gong show where you just pitch short, you know, three lines about a show and they either like it or they say gong. Next yeah. one. Uh, and I know we presented like 22 ideas. And I think 18 of them were mine and the others were Jim's, I think. Jim was in, you know working full-time as a story editor at the time. Yeah, you um, said you'd all kind of just, you'd have these spit sessions coming up with ideas. And, and really at the beginning, he said it was you a bunch of guys around makeshift desks and just really kind of stuck in a corner somewhere and just trying to get this, this idea of Eisner's off the ground with not too much direction. That was, that, that was before I had gone over when they okay. were trying to do gummy bears um i know for a while they kind of chased the idea of candy kind of a candy land thing and villain called licorice whip and they actually thought of much like the early he-man show had a moral at the end of the uh show that he-man would talk to camera you know well mm. what we learned is you know <laughs> uh they thought about we'll need to do a a little thing about dental hygiene at the end of the show which is a bizarre <laughs> idea yeah uh and finally, I don't know, well, Jim maybe told you whether they presented any of those ideas or they just knew they weren't working, but they basically threw that all out, came up with the whole gummy berry juice and a medieval world and, you know, kind of created that from whole cloth. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, he went to not so much some of the, the pre-stuff, but how they got into the um, the medieval world being, oh, well, most of our 
animated uh, most of the animated movies take place in Europe. You know, a lot of the base source stuff is from Europe. So let's base this in Europe and kind of went from there. So you you worked on that a little bit. And then Oh, I was just, what happened is I was like I say a creative manager. I was in management uh and helping, you know, early ideas on DuckTales. But then Jim had had no experience in television. He had never written a teleplay. And Disney told NBC, this is who our story editor is going to be. Now, the story editor is close to a showrunner. So mm -hmm. a showrunner these days, most people would know if they know anything about the industry. is like That is the creative lead of a show that all the scripts are going to go through him. He's going to be working with all the writers and all that. So generally, you want somebody very experienced there. And Disney said, this is who we're going with. And they said, well, what scripts have he done? None, you know, and no experience. So they did that for two years, and then I think both sides were getting tired of each other. So they wanted a change. Um, so I was told to step in for the third season of Gummy Bears. So that's all I did. I rewrote the Bible to kind of open up the world to new story ideas, making Denwin more of a hub of trade. And it was just... Mm -hmm. I was just trying to, it was just massaging. It was the same show, but it was just kind of saying, this is this is a way to bring in different kinds of characters, more exotic yeah. stuff and all of that. And then when it was time to flesh out the Disney afternoon, uh, Mark Seidenberg and Rich Vogel came on to flesh out everything that we, you know, a full 65 episodes. So they picked up from there and, and finished it. So next came DuckTales. So uh, did you work much on well, that, that one? I I would have, up until a year and a half ago, two years ago, I would have sworn that, oh, no, I just gave notes on DuckTales. I never did anything on it. And I'm going through my some of the stuff I've saved. Uh, and I find this press release about a Valentine's special, and it's an interview with the writer Lynn Yuley, who still works in animation. Um, and Lynn's going on and on about, his great story editor, Tad Stones. And, and, that, but, and it was like, oh, I guess I at least did that. Uh, so I was part of, again, I gave notes early on. Then I was into my own show. Um, and that was after that. because So DuckTales, it was just like around the edges. Uh, meanwhile, we're trying to come up with new shows. Uh, Jim and I, oh, actually, I take it back. In one of our gong shows, uh, we pitched the idea of, I think it was Ken Kuntz and Dave Weimers, who had been on Wuzzles, also kind of responsible for bringing in the Carl Bark stuff originally in the original conversation about DuckTales. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, they just came up with the name Metro or Miami Mice, and Miami Vice was huge at that time. Um, yes, and the guys... Uh, said this many times, Jeffrey and Katzenberg and Michael Eisner loved catchy names. They always expected you to do a great show. Um, but they felt like if you had a name that had a hook, more people tune into those early episodes to see what it's all about, and then it's up to you to keep them. So they love Miami Mice. Uh, I don't know whether it was a note from legal or we did it on our own, but quickly changed it to Metro Mice. Uh, and then Jim and I on Carl Gears, who later did uh, New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, uh, did a first script. We created the villain character Fat Cat. Mm -hmm. But the problem 
the limitation of that was Metro Mice was literally a Hill Street Blues, but on a mouse level. And you couldn't do all those normal cop show stories because it's a kid show yep. and they're yep. mice. Uh, how many, you know, so that was a problem. We needed to expand it more, in a more general way. Uh, so we came up with the idea of what are these, you know, I can remember the part of the freeway where I, I hit a name just going through alliterations and stuff, but rescue rangers and the head character was Kit Colby, who wore this kind of aviator's jacket with a furry collar. Um, and he had these group of, uh, you know, a chameleon, a cricket, a, a kangaroo rat, a fly, and this white mouse gadget, who was the inventor. Uh, and they rode around on a nearsighted bald eagle uh, with thick glasses. <laughs> and uh, they were the rescue rangers. So we pitched that at a meeting with Michael Eisner. Uh, and they like the show. They like it a lot, but they don't feel anything for Kit Colby, the lead character. And that was the show or the meeting where I had pitched Gizmo Duck and uh, all the Robo Duck at the time, uh, Bubba Duck and the Alien Duck. Alien Duck didn't make it. The other two. They say, say, I don't remember an those. alien. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great. You know, put those in DuckTales. Um, and I kind of, I think I even said stupidly, I said, well, are you sure we do, we're just not getting the character? Maybe if we see a little more. And they said, no, no, we got the RoboDuck and the and the Bubba Duck in a in a picture and a few words. That's what we need on this guy. Anyway, meeting moved on. Ducktales, you know, super successful. They were going through the line. We're still not going to touch Mickey. Donald's in Ducktales, kind of, kind of hard to animate. Um, uh, Goofy, yes develop goofy he can be anything because he's been an everyman character pluto we're not going to do a show about the dog and we got to chip and dale and michael eisner said um put those chipmunks in that show and previous they said look guys michael loves the show it's just not a home run yet but as soon mm -hmm. as he said put those characters in that show jeffrey said home run and right. that changed all the dynamics because suddenly you have two leads you don't need as many characters. The kangaroo rat became Monterey Jack. Zipper mm -hmm. stayed zipper. Gadget stayed in. Uh, and got rid of the eagle and instead made it an invention, the ranger plane by Gadget. So that's how that happened. Um, so I went from there and then, of course, to uh, uh, Darkwing Duck. And then after Darkwing Duck, I had a space show I really wanted to do. But that's when they said, no, now we're going to do shows based on features because of my feature background. And uh, they had me do Aladdin. And from Aladdin, did some home videos, then uh, came back to series for Hercules and Buzz Lightyear Star Command. And then Team Atlantis <laughs> <laughs> never got done. Uh, and then more development and then i was out the door ah well can i back you up to darkwing because i okay. see you have this amazing cell in the background and personally one of my favorites and one of the guys i co-host um is also a huge darkwing fan um let me get to my proper notes here what was the inspiration for darkwing 
Uh, I was ordered to create a show by Jeffrey Katzenberg with the title Double O Duck. Uh, there had been a DuckTales episode with Launchpad McQuack as a James Bond uh, parody of Double O Duck um, called Double O Duck. Jeffrey loved the name. I don't even know if he saw the episode. He might have because he told me it can't be Launchpad McQuack. It has to be a new character. And again, this goes back to we want a name that will hook you in. And he loved mm-hmm like the name Double O Duck. Um, so I wasn't super enthused about the idea. I just went into it to make it kind of a parody thing of all the, all the stuff you would assume um, of making fun of all the James Bond tropes. But uh, it didn't really have any heart or sense of family. I basically stopped at that level of parody and pitched to Jeffrey. And he basically said he just like a laser pinpointed everything I thought was wrong with it. (laughs) He says, got no sense of heart or no sense of family. There's no heart to it. You're just doing a parody. I recently have realized how lucky I was because normally the thing is, I'm going to assign this to somebody else. Instead, he said, do it again. And now I went into it and what I should have done the first time. How am I going to do this different? How am I going to do this in an interesting way? And in one of our brainstorming session with which was the great thing about having writers on staff and this paid off in several key shows uh Dwayne Capizzi with story editor who's got great credits men in black and and Alf was I think his first animated um anyway he said you know seeing this duck in his suit and cape and mask it's more like a pulp hero like Green Hornet or the shadow and I instantly brightened at that because i love that stuff i was too young to have grown up with the old radio stuff but i knew them through comic fandom and heard old radio shows on tape and all of that and uh suddenly that opened doc savage had a team of guys who were all experts in different he had an engineer and a chemist and a communications guy uh and a driver and and it was like oh that's a, a different way of building a team that's nothing like james bond but we could do this same kind of thing. Um, problem is that was way too many characters. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, we got to the point where that heart that we needed with the idea that he would uh, adopt a daughter. Uh, some of the early publicity called her an uh, niece. And I think it was just people at Disney just assuming it's always Uncle Donald, Uncle Mickey. Uncle, Do- yep. Uncle Mickey. Uh, but she was never a niece. She was always going to be adopted. And Launchpad had actually always been, probably because he was just in our thoughts from those early days, had always been part of the team. He was like a secondary. He thought he should be the hero, not this other guy, uh, which seems very unlaunchpad to me now. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it just became that trio. And uh, as as Frank Angonis, you know, co-producer of the new DuckTales, said, oh, Tad, we know that it's the story of a father and a daughter in a launch pad. that's the little that's the family that's the heart of it they love the idea and we went out and we lost the we not did not have the rights to use double o that was owned by the james bond you know producers at the time uh so his we actually had a contest to rename him alan burnett who became the head story editor of uh warner brothers batman uh 
he's the one who came up with Darkwing. I added Duck to it because I wanted the dramatic and the silly. Um, he won a prize, went on to <laughs> do fantastic <laughs> things. Uh, anyway, and having once this, we didn't take the spy stuff out, but not being pinned down with that double O name allowed me to really dive in what I grew up with, with which was Silver Age comics. Mm-hmm. Even before Marvel, it was just how the DC comics at the time were just very silly. And uh, we did a, a lot of that was, thank goodness there was no internet at the time, because had I been able to look up old covers and old stories, I probably would have tried to avoid them too much. Uh-huh. Instead of just saying, I remember Superman had a super evolved head and then they did it with Lois. They did the same story with the Flash. Let's do something with a character with a giant head, you know, giant brain. Um, it was, you know, I always told my writers, pitch me the comic book cover. Because that way there's always a visual at the center of the story. Right. That we play our, you know, uh, our story against. But uh, Darkwing at the studio was totally different. This is before Aladdin. And we had a character talking to camera and being smashed by safes and surviving. And I remember an executive said, how do we have any jeopardy if you have a safe fall on him and he's fine? You know, how do you even cut to a commercial? Uh, And I said, because I'll play scary music and he'll look frightened. And that worked fine. You never questioned it that you we actually told some emotional stuff in there and it really had an effect on our audience more than I knew until 30 years later. Um, but that, that is how he, he came about. Some people, even people at the studio at the time, there's always people trying to connect dots and yeah. there's people thought, Oh yeah, it was based on double O duck. And there is a Max Mallard was another episode of Darkwing, or excuse me of DuckTales where uh, Scrooge, puts on a superhero suit i'm not sure to this day if i've ever seen the episode but they just look at those and assume yeah they put those two things together and that's what created darkwing it's like no i was ordered to do this spy show we lost the rights to the spy and with the new name i was able to go toward comic books there was no that was the influence was 100 jeffrey ordering me to do something (laughs) um And, and thankfully he did he went that direction with it um you brought up Goslin's adoption. Mm-hmm. And to me at the time when I was watching it, didn't mean anything to me now. Umpteen years later means so much more. I'm an adoptive father and seeing something way from back, you know, when Darkwing was out, having a strong adoptive character and portrayed in such a positive manner, um, I think is absolutely brilliant and fantastic. So how did you come up? I mean, you mentioned that, okay, people say, niece, you, you mom with the adopted part. What what drove you to bring, you know, make her an adopted character, which is, was something even nowadays is still kind of not um, touched on as much. The uh, really it was it was a uh, process of elimination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like what I didn't want in the story. I didn't want <clears throat> a mom. Uh, I didn't want, you know, um, to explain why she's there and who the relatives were. And, you know, I wanted to get more. We had the neighbors. We had the Muddlefoots. We didn't need a lot of more non-Darkwing elements to this series. 
Um, and it just seemed like adoption is, is why not? Uh, the main thing is I wanted Goslin Goslin to be a very broad character, every bit as funny as as Darkwing. In fact, Goslin's probably my favorite character of the series. Um, and I said, but you never doubt that those two love each other. Yeah. I said, I want them to hug. Um, I want them to to say they love each other, you know, but they drive each other crazy. And that is what I had people come up to my table. Well, 25 years later, now it's been 30 uh, at a comic convention and, you know, get teary eyed because of how much that relationship meant to them, because it wasn't so much that these were adopted or foster children or anything. They just had really rough childhoods or problems with a father figure Mm -hmm. or dad wasn't there. And that show was like an anchor to them. Um, So that was it. I mean. I think it was it might have been Gary Chrysler or Jim Magon in discussing things early on. This is back on Gummies, just talking about, you know, cartoon characters never touch each other. And just putting a hand on the shoulder gives you a visual closeness. And I always remembered that. And I, you know, made that definitely part of our show in Darkwing Duck. And I think and that is not lost. Uh, no spoilers, but um, Goslin will return in a new DuckTales uh, oh. coming up in when is it september october somewhere in there uh, they, uh, they look have something, end of september starts the new season i know it, it i think it finishes up with an at one point there's an hour-long darkwing story yeah i i can't wait i am um um big into darkwing and a lot of those reasons is it, i like the superhero part but I think what really pulled me into the character was, the, like you said, those family moments of, you know, again, something that broke a lot of the, the you know, okay, it wasn't a single mom parent. It's a single dad trying to raise a daughter. Yeah. And, you know, well, you had well, the, we used to describe it as as what if Batman had a little girl who refused to stay at home? You know, yeah. simple as that. That that is probably a better explanation than the original Robin because I'm Batman. I'm fighting crime. You know what I need is an eight year old helping me out in yeah. short pants. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, so that was it. The show did not sell to Michael and Jeffrey until we had that connection because that's what made it different. You yeah. could do, you know, there had been underdog, uh, there were other superhero parodies that had been done in live action. Uh, this is what made it unique is that it was this trying to build this family and keep this family going um, while being a superhero. And again, not being cloying about it to actually um, have this funny relationship. Uh, that's what you know made the series as good as it is, I think. Yeah. And then you came up with a, a, a great cast of supporting, or even I'll say the villain characters, um, with obviously parodies on different other type of uh, superhero villains, mostly DC at the time, because DC was substantially more popular than Marvel, I, I would say. Yeah, I mean, by the time of the show, they were more, I mean, Marvel was a phenomenon when it 
you know, about a year after it started, it was getting covered in Esquire magazine and all that, that way, my college kids reading these comic books. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely Batman's rogues gallery, the Flash's rogues gallery, the Flash comic covers that I have remembered had a huge emphasis on the show. Uh, Spider-Man had a great rogues gallery. Those are the three top ones, I'd say. Um, People, again, connect the dots. They they always say Bushroot, our vegetable duck, uh, (laughs) is based on poison ivy, and he's not at all. He was based on Plant Man, who was a villain in Strange Tales comic. Uh, Originally, he wore a big floppy hat and a dark cloak, uh, and then he came back once in a very ridiculous leaf costume with big leaves off of his thing and leaf mask and all that. But um, what he did in those comics was make the trees bend down and swat people and cactus throw needles. Uh, and the other part was a little bit of Swamp Thing from DC. Just the idea of you can't really kill this guy because mm-hmm. if you chop him up, he's just going to grow again. Uh, so those two were Bushroot. Liquidator, people say, well, he's Hydro-Man. And it's like Hydro-Man hit in the gap of time where I was not reading comics. It was like college and I didn't have a, there were no comic stores then. Uh, There was no place to get comics there. And it's just like, for a while I had someone buying them for me and and that just got clumsy. Um, But he was actually based on the Sandman from Spider-Man because in his Spider-Man number four, I'm going to say, Salmon actually went through grates and, you know, in some ways acted like water, but he was moving sand. And I believe whether in that issue or an early one, Spider-Man mixed concrete into the sand and hit him with water, which is, I believe, what we did for Liquidator. So he was what that character was based on. Yeah. Uh, Negaduck. Negaduck is just a classic, let's fit a hero into a good version, the evil version. Um, From the alternate universe. Well, yeah, originally he wasn't that, and he was just Darkwing split in two. And at the end of it, I said, look, Jim loves doing both characters. It turns out to be easier than we thought to keep track of them, although there's some mistakes. Um, Bring back Negaduck, and the writers said, how do we do that? It'll be the same story every time. I said, no, I don't want to see Posaduck. Nobody likes Posaduck. I said, just bring him back. And they said, how do we explain it? And my answer was, you don't. They never <laughs> explain why any of Batman's villains were not in prison. Right. They were not in Arkham. They were just there for a new story. And that was the thing, you know, famously people say, oh, Tad is anti-continuity. And it's like, no, on Darkwing Duck, it was that Silver Age continuity, which is a little bit of continuity, but not much. And you don't go out of your way to explain things. You just bring things in and use them as you need to do your story and your entertainment. Uh, So, yes, we had across, you know, we brought Gizmo Duck from... uh, ducktales but i had no clue what storyline had been even though i had pitched the original character he was really developed by the guys on ducktales um i didn't know any of his storylines i didn't care i needed him to come over as the superman character and people have said no you mean iron man i said no superman because superman 
was loved by everybody. Superman yeah. got the key to the city, you know, had parades. He did, was this one. People cheered when they saw him. All the things that Darkwing Duck desperately <laughs> wants and will never get. Uh, that's why we brought him in. Uh, the whole, when I say they're a different universe, it upset a lot of people. And they say, well, he's wrong about that. And it's like, it, it's just a way of explaining our thing and it's like they point to Launchpad and I said I point to Launchpad as proof we made we redesigned Launchpad we made him a great pilot and yep. incredibly stupid and then in the new DuckTales Frank Aragonas made him even stupider and a bad pilot so it was like the worst of both terrors. you get the, the combination a, of them. hilarious you know, and he continues to be hilarious in a whole new way. So I love what they did with him. Anyway, so that's how I approached everything. Where you know, what's what's the fun of the story? But the um, people asked why Negaduck was yellow, black, and red, and they tried to figure out a logical reason. I said, no, those those are the colors of the Reverse Flash, the most famous in my mind, evil counterpart to a hero, and those were cool, evil-looking colors to me. Um, I, I was so say, that's all my early comic stuff, you know, coming into the show. Nothing wrong with that. I, that that just, um, you know, in, in finding out that how much the comics, you know, inspired you in in um, carried helped you along in creating this show. I, I think just makes it even that much better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my regret is we had a very fast schedule. We had a ridiculous script schedule. Uh, and some things you just want to develop more, you know, and uh, like our Aquaman character was Neptunia. And I just felt like we didn't quite hit her the way she should have been. And uh, but yet I have people say, oh, she's my favorite character or something. Um, Morgana Macabre, I think, was great in her original episodes in her yeah. famous Justice Justice Ducks. Um, that got a away from us in that uh, my way of thinking because she's very much kind of like a insecure damsel in distress and uh which works fine for the story but mm -hmm. it's like man her character was richer than that we should have played on that she was a little better as we brought her back you know in other episodes with darkwing um so you know all the stuff was done on a fly and and you know not every episode is great i love the episodes where we played with the um universe like the one comic book classics i think it is where the story changes as different people are writing the comic and somebody puts a coffee cup down oh, yes. on the comic page and they run into a giant coffee cup we again can't explain it logically but it made no. for a hilarious episode but it, i think most people have to realize it is a kids tv show <laughs> yeah you have to just sit back and enjoy the the fun that's being presented to you. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember the yeah the one that they're I remember specifically the one that you're talking about where they're writing the story as it plays out and just it kind of just keeps evolving in weird left turns whenever someone else picks up and takes over the yeah um, that was that was brilliant. Um, you brought up Jim. Did you know? When you were you were auditioning, I guess for voices, Jim was your guy, or like how you know, what made you, or did you when you listened to him, he's like, you know what, this guy might work, 
or you Jim know, Cummings. He had, yeah, he had done some stuff beforehand. I mean, I started. I met Jim Cummings on my season of the Gummy Bears because by then he had taken over for Paul Winchell, um, and he was just a a great guy, a billion voices, uh, bounced off all the actors well, and all that. And we always tried to record all the actors together. Uh, which isn't done anymore and uh, are rarely done these days. Yeah, he actually uh, posted a, a video clip that someone recorded from one of the that sessions. That was me. That was, I recorded, that was actually the read-through that I think Justice Ducks, because there's a mm-hmm. billion people in there. Yeah, you know, there are a whole bunch of people in one small group. group. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I had done more of that. Anyway, when it came to Rescue Rangers, it was down to between Peter Cullen and Jim Cummings um, for the voice of Monterey Jack. And we went with Peter, could have gone with Jim, but Peter had just a slightly lower voice. It was not a a huge thing. And then as we started recording, I just felt like we weren't getting the comedy out of the lines. And it's not like we had joke lines. It's like, no, you have to have more of a, humorous take on the character and you you just say a line in a different way it's not like i can coach you into it but i knew it was there and so we replaced uh, uh peter at the time with jim and suddenly okay now this is working so i certainly knew him from there i knew rob paulson from um gusto gummy and paul yep. was such a great guy we brought him in all the time uh as a character and uh so when it came to Darkwing, I'm sure we recorded other people. Um, I mean, auditioned them. I can't remember them. Uh, and I've not found a list of, maybe I might have found a list that were the usual suspects and all that. But Jim very much was in the lead. Once he got the job, um, Jim as he says i'm dw's dad dw's mom is jenny is uh uh jenny mcswain the voice director and casting director that jim would do a a weird sound there's a famous one is darkwing has this flattened voice that he does you know when he's been hit or something um yeah and in a second episode or something like that, he was hit again and Jim did a different kind of a sound. And Ginny said, no, no, do that squash thing again. And she was constantly giving feedback to Jim about the character they were kind of building together. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the, we had tapes of all the shows. Those are instantly given to writers who are you know, trying to get literally write the voice. Uh, and so that's a feedback loop. So Jim was a huge, you know, the uh, I did a kind of a convention in Russia where the Disney afternoon is way bigger culturally than it is in any other country. Wow. Uh, and Jim made some comments. Oh, I should have gone too. And it was like, you weren't Darkwing. <laughs> they had a couple of Russian guys who, who did it. But Jim was part of that initial process, that feedback loop that helped create the character. Mm-hmm. That didn't matter that other people took over the voice in other countries. You know, he was part of that central, you know, the genesis of the character. Well, from my understanding, he's gone saying that's one of his favorite all-time characters that he's ever done was Darkwing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he just, 
again, just breathes so much life into, like he does with so many of his other characters, but I guess uh, there's something just a little extra special with his performance uh, with the with Darkwing. I think, um, I mean, Jim was a huge comic fan too, and working with Chrissy as Goslin was special. Um, and I think it was the mix of that show that helped make, that helped make it more interesting to play that character that he wasn't just he wasn't just daffy duck he had yeah. this heart he had this these frustrations that were on an emotional level we see an episode of what would have happened if goslin left his life you know um so i mean that was uh, to me an actor loves stuff like that it's like oh yeah you can just do a goofy voice time and time again but to be given a storyline or a, you know a central role that lets you do play with different things you know plus to get to be the negative version of of himself oh, well, yeah you know was a whole other thing so um get to be your evil yeah, twin I think, yeah exactly so um you brought up justice ducks now from my little research that there was at one point a pitch to do a spin-off darkwing spin-off of justice ducks is there any truth behind that or not from me? You got to realize we, I, I always get asked, are there any episodes that you didn't get to do? Well, I don't know if get is the, the word <laughs> to to get three premises approved. We generally pitched seven premises or something like that. So there are all these ideas that could have become a great thing or who knows, maybe those would have been crappy episodes, but uh, and it's kind of the same thing with show pitches. There's all sorts of shows and variations of shows, shows that came back time and time again. So I'm sure, especially we, we're very lucky. You always have like an executive assigned to a show, usually a mid-level executive who gives notes. And the idea is that here's somebody who knows your show well enough that they're informed, but it's still an outside voice mm-hmm. that can say, oh, you're this is supposed to be an adventure show and you're, you're not, I'm not getting any adventure out of this episode or is this a one-off or, you know, it's that kind of note. Uh, well, luckily for us, our exec was uh, Greg Wiseman and Greg had been a DC comics editor and actually had written, uh, several issues of, um, Captain Adam comics. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think he got credit at the time. Um, so he knew, everything we were playing with and could really give notes that helped that. And the other thing he said, look, it's your show. I'm going to argue for what I think is, but ultimately you don't have to take my notes. I'm so thankful that he never told that to the boss because there's no way the boss would let him get away with that. (laughs) But it was, he generally had good notes and all of that. So I'm sure if it wasn't Greg, it could have been uh, to say, Hey, here's a natural spinoff that we could have done. Um, but, you know, I, if it did happen, I don't know how detailed it was. Um, and it probably just got passed on. It's just part of the process. And yeah. sometimes that's a marketing thing. It's like, no, we've sold a bunch of those characters or that toys weren't that big. Um, we want fresh stuff. And the main thing was, oh, we're going to do Aladdin now. We're going to do, you know, different kinds of shows. Um so it, again, it might have been pitched. I can't say yay or nay to it. Okay. Um, how does it feel 
see Darkwing's duck Darkwing's legacy so has endured, you know, into the fact that again, people are still talking to you about it, um, telling life stories, and he's in the new show. Oh, I I mean I love it. My two favorite projects of my career were Darkwing Duck and Hellboy animated, uh, for entirely different reasons. Um to see the DuckTales crew being made of fans of all those original shows. Uh, so, and then yet they're rebooting things in the proper way of, no, we're just not going to rehash it. We're not here to tell the same stories over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, we're building a new universe. We're going to interconnect things and all that. And they had this master plan of Darkwing. They actually gave, I always avoided a Darkwing origin. You know, I gave him like six. Um, they gave him a true origin and, uh, Negaduck of course gets a a true origin and it threw people because Jim was doing the voice, the original character say, Oh, you're, that's, that's the old Darkwing. And it's like, no, pay attention to the name. That's Jim Starling. This is Drake Mallard is the guy who shows up. That's the new Darkwing. Um, I mean, they've taken me through all their dreams that they would love to do with that character. But, you know, DuckTales is DuckTales. It's not Darkwing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm anxious to see the, the hour. But they understood from the get-go the, the heart of the character. They were they put things in storylines that, you know, the idea that Darkwing never gives up. Um, you knock him down, he never gives up. And they made that a thing that inspired Launchpad. Uh, so he's part of Launchpad's life. The old show was. Right. Um, and it's like, we never talked about that. But it was like, as soon as I heard it, it was like, yeah, I can. That definitely makes sense. That's exactly what the character did over and over again. We didn't. We didn't use it on the on the, you know, level of a slogan or something. <laughs> we'll but spell it, it out. was like. It, but it is what he did. So there is that deep understanding. Again, Frank is the one who said it's the story of a father, daughter, and a large pet. He knew that he needed all three to really do the show. Um, and it is, um, to me, a real reboot. When you see a new Sherlock Holmes movie, you don't expect it to be the same as the previous two or three Sherlock Holmes movies that all had different actors. And one was set in present day and one was set in Victorian times. And one was in space with a robot Watson, you know, and same with Robin hood. And yet people just expected, why isn't this just Darkwing exactly as he is, you know, or as he was. And as I like to say, those guys are doing DuckTales for this century. We did the one for the last century, you know? Uh, So I, it's just I'm super pleased not only that the characters lived on that they're doing a version of him that really um, does justice to you know the original character and they really understand it yet it's a, a new version and of course their show has super continuity and that's perfectly fine that you know, makes great sense yeah the the story arc for the, for the new stuff is is a lot more knitted together and in, in repercussions and characters showing up. I and mean, what are your thoughts on the, on the new show? I got Jim's. On DuckTales? Yeah. I got Jim's t- uh, take on it. I, I'm curious to see what your take on the, the new DuckTales is. I 
love it. I think it's a much better show than the original show. Again, considering how fast we had to work back then and what they do now, uh, when they were creating the show, they went back to the source materials, not 1987 DuckTales alone. That's a huge part of it. They mm-hmm. went back to um, Donald Duck comic strips, Uncle Scrooge comic strips, obviously Uncle Scrooge comics, um, Donald Duck short subjects, the who gets stuck with all the bad luck. Mm-hmm. They made a huge part of his personality, which Carl Barks didn't do. Uh, they did the only thing they would have done differently, and they finally found a way to do it, is they love the Carl Barks version of Donald, which is only possible if you can understand Donald Duck. Right. So they uh, the tie in that. Yeah. Carl Barks used to, he knew how to write Donald Duck for a cartoon, but the Donald Duck for his comic books had no limitations at all. He was a super salesman. You know, he spoke like paragraphs of material at a time. Um, so how they looked at each, you know, looked at the essence of characters, I think, you know, the idea of breaking up the nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, uh, is to actually be different personalities. The only argument to not do that is to say, well, it's never been done that way before. And it's like, right, it is now, <laughs> you know, and why you have to go out of your way to explain really why would these three boys have the exact same personality and the same voice and all of that? Uh, the changes they did with Webby are just, she's fantastic character you know those kids in that show are just refreshing and uh, mm-hmm. you know there are there are fans not so much now because it's hugely popular but you know early on we're saying oh, there's not enough scrooge mcduck and it was like well part of that was some of the early episodes reordered but it's like they were given a mandate to make it the show about the adventures of the kids with their uncles not the adventure of the uncles who sometimes brings the kids uh you know, it's like me being ordered to do a secret agent show. You know, you've got certain marching orders and maybe there's a fan out there who doesn't like those marching orders. And it's like, OK, but they were my marching orders. So this is what I was way. told to yeah. do. So, yeah. Um, but I just love the richness they bring to it, how they rethought things, how they interweave it, uh, how playful they are with it, how much they set things up again. They asked me, um, how big was your writer's room? And I laughed. I said, there was no writer's room. You guys would come <laughs> into my office room. and shout story ideas at me. And we'd shout back and forth until we had something, you know. Uh, yeah, we had to turn out a script a week plus one every other week. Um, that was just insane. That's uh, a lot. The, so they plan out a whole season. They plan out character arcs. They think about things. The art director is in from day one. So he understands how to change the artwork and, and do stuff to it. Mood-wise, that, you know, will enhance the story. Um, sometimes take the burden of the story to really do a lot with the visuals. That, so you don't have to do as much with the talking and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just a, a huge fan of what they've done. I'd love to see them go on and do a Darkwing series, but that's, people assume, oh, obviously they're going to do it. I said, there's nothing obvious about things going on to Disney these days, you know. No. Uh, you know, enjoy what nice. you have. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I like that they've, they've, they've actually even really brought Dumbella in as a a character and not just a one-liner from uh, an old Darkwing, uh, old Donald Duck cartoon. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and they even explain why she's Della in her name's Della, but it was Donald used to insult her by calling her Dumbella. Yeah. Uh, and Della is a fantastic. There's a case where uh, they came up with the idea of her losing a leg on the moon. In a, you know that she had to cut it off herself, and right. they worked with they worked with associations of of people that work with people with prosthetics and all of that so they portrayed it right and they love how the character's been done uh same thing i know they had discussions about goslin and the whole you know being an adopted child how should that be portrayed you know we didn't have didn't have time but you know what we thought was right but there's all sorts of issues that you're three hours behind on this script (laughs) yeah exactly uh so i i just a huge fan of what they do the only thing wrong is they're not showing all the episodes to me right now <laughs> <laughs> how dare they it's a shame that it's you know it's kind of winding down but it's it's been an adventure speaking yeah. of adventures um and you brought up aladdin a couple times so what was it like to take on aladdin you know you, you had this mega movie hit the theaters and now you're being told okay continue it on the small screen it was uh scary i mean i would be terrified it, if someone said it was not well you realize it was done by friends of mine so i went over and talked to ron and john about what i'm being done they didn't have a problem with it um mm. but i know that you can't help to compare it to the feature film we did not have the budget or the time of the feature film so even our best episodes um, aren't, I was so self-conscious having started in features would not come up to the level of what they did, you know, in features. Uh, plus some storylines were great, you know, it, it, it's fantastic in script and storyboard and then it goes to the wrong studio overseas and it just, yeah, it just didn't come out as well. And others, you know, the script is just okay. Goes to a great studio and parade, yeah. cause for you know enjoyment. Um, but I was just very, I was very self-conscious about that. Uh, and of course, um, again, Return of Jafar came from we always debuted in a multi-part episodes. Mm-hmm. And the main thing I wanted to do that I said, if you took the genie out of the movie, Iago would steal the show because he was hilarious he had all the good ideas <laughs> um yeah. and i love the idea of having that guy in the middle of the good characters um anyhow i had to explain like how he could come out and jafar didn't and uh, all of that and uh you know i brought up that technically we were doing the sequel to aladdin to home video uh, only as a means to keep our budget up. I thought if there was another s- revenue stream coming off of our stuff, our budgets wouldn't be cut because they were starting to get tight. Um, and I pitched it twice because they weren't interested the first time. But after they released Aladdin on video, they became very interested. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, uh, created, you know, that started the whole direct-to-video stuff at Disney. You know, Universal... I had it in the works already to do the first ones because I later did one for Universal. Um, But I don't know, Jafar was made for like 
three and a half million dollars and made 180 to 200 million dollars domestic or more uh so it was like that was that was something yeah uh, they were happy with so that. anyway it on that level i mean the the idea of the the adventures and all of that i my favorite episodes are the ones that are more fairy tale like or or mm -hmm. arabian nights like um you know it was just fun writing for the genie dan castellanetto's fantastic as you know the genie um that must have been hard to got, try and you know to to reconcert because i think of all was, the voice it, actors there's the one that you did yeah inevitably for one reason or another had to change up well the the writer still wrote him as if he was robin williams it was up to dan to create a different personality which he did um and then of course we got robin back to do aladdin and the king of thieves uh, and he even mixed up when talking about aladdin in the you know in other interviews he mm. mixed up talking about the feature film basically quoting gags out of our projects which <laughs> you know made us feel good um so anyway that was it was daunting you know once we got into it you know i have to forget about the judgment of things uh and just go on and, and do the series so again some episodes better than others but on the whole you know it's it's a lot of fun i've had james silvani who does the darkwing duck comic books uh we often when we're at conventions, I'm sitting next to him and Amy Meverson, who did the Pocket Princesses and now the Disney Princess comics uh, and designed rows of princess toys uh, and, and Baby Yoda toys for Hasbro. Uh, anyway, James would always say, why don't you draw Aladdin and Jasmine, you know, and Genie? Because I, I sell original art at cons, but I only do my shows, right. uh, uh, at least rangers and, and darkwing a few gummies thrown in and i said well one they're really hard to draw james <laughs> <laughs> and uh two i said those are ron john's characters more than that um but the nostalgia window always moves and yeah. uh i'm starting to get requests for buzz lightyear characters and i'd say oh i have to start practicing um anyway so so Aladdin was daunting, still a lot of fun, you know, a big adventure. Um, and then it looked, I was in video for a while and they were doing Hercules. They were trying to figure out who would run the Hercules show. And evidently like the year, the day before one of the guys in management said, God, you know, Tad would be perfect for this show, but I don't, I mean, we, we can't even bring it up to him. And that it's like the next day I came down because I just didn't like where my pathway might be. And mm -hmm. I said, um, is there anything in TV animation that I could work on? I mean, in series that I could work on? And it was like, <laughs> how about this? Oh, here you uh, go. Although Hercules, Hercules was one of the best looking shows we did. Uh, and story-wise, it was uh, Bob Scully and Mark McCorkle who created Kim Possible. Uh, they did a fantastic job of that series to really create the storylines and the humor. And, you know, we got this fantastic guest star cast coming in and they would always capture the voice of those stars and, mm -hmm. and putting them in. Uh, so that was a that was a fantastic show on a whole different level. We killed ourselves doing 
songs in every episode because they were such a big part of the movie. And then, you know, we did some testing after we were done. As the kids are saying, yeah, there's so many songs. They always saw the songs as stopping the story instead of moving it along. It was like, oh, God, we could have saved ourselves a lot of work. Um, So that was that was that. And then backed up to that, we had to do Buzz Lightyear. So it, I mean, was it was there much difference between how you approached or just having to deal with Aladdin, Hercules, and then Buzz Lightyear, or um, well, was it kind of the same process? Did you kind of get into no, a group? Actually, usually you don't have to do sh- two shows back to back. So it's like as we're finishing up Aladdin, well, we're working in Aladdin. The next show is starting to be in work, uh, and that might have been Tarzan at the time. Whatever. It's another another series. Um, so the only thing you have to watch out for as a producer is that's when they start stealing your best artists to start going mm-hmm. on, to have the strongest artist to, to start the next series. And it was something you always had to prepare for. Um, Hercules, you know, we pitched one show. Michael said, yeah, let's do it. And then they said, well, you don't really have a show yet. And I had to try to revamp our ideas, came up with the Teenage One which was a shock to Ron and John because they felt like, Tad, we did the perfect show for you. We did Superman and you didn't do it. And I said, yeah, because it's really hard to write Superman stories. Yeah. But Superboy, we can deal with because of high school stuff. Um, Anyway, for whatever reason, schedule wise, they wanted us to then do Buzz Lightyear. So I tried to get the guys to take, I said, you have to take Fridays off and just devote it to Buzz Lightyear. You have to pretend that you only have four days to do your job, and then that fifth day is the new job. And they just wouldn't do that, because they well, we've got work, we've got work. And it's like, you always are going to have work. So I did beginning stuff on Buzz Lightyear and create some of the characters and, and all of that, and it's early visual stuff. But it was a more contained kind of show in a lot of ways. Um, then they finally got free. They started doing it, and they basically, aside from all the development I did, stories-wise and series-wise, I mean, development, they kind of started from scratch. And they said, okay, should this be a buddy cop show? And, you know, the challenge of of doing that show was that, because uh, this is just after Toy Story, um, that there was uh, buzz was a fish out of water he would he thought he was a real spaceman not a toy and a lot of the humor of toy story the bulk of it when it comes to buzz lightyear is about that yeah Uh, suddenly we have a show where the spaceman is a spaceman there is not a disconnect so it was like how do we get the same sort of humor out of that so that was really hard we came up with the idea of cadets to make them kind of as a group, kind of these underdogs. Um, was that your that idea, was, or was that the idea that was presented to you to work with? No, no, they were, they just said we're doing a Buzz Lightyear show, so okay. we had to, we had to work that out. Um, anyway, the then in the middle of it, we're, we're we're in production, and we say, you know, this is coming out before because by that time toy story 2 which had been a home video project was taken over by the pixar mm-hmm. um 
And we said it's going to come out before the movie. Is that okay? And I didn't have any problem with that. And then, I don't know, months later, we have a second meeting, kind of an update thing. And uh, uh, there was a different executive in the room He said, who said, wait, this is coming out before the movie? You can't do that. <laughs> Michael Eisner said, yeah, you can't do that. So the nice uh, thing about that was we stayed in production. It didn't affect us any. But when it came time to do that opening movie, instead of having to do it early in the show or in the middle of the show, it was the last thing we did. And that meant that all the basic designs of characters and aliens and space and star command and hallways and spaceship robots, all that was designed. So the money we had for that episode could all go to new stuff or new special effects. And, you know, we didn't have to just, uh, what color do we paint the walls kind of thing. Um, so that really helped the quality of, of that. Patrick Warburton was fantastic as, as Bud Lightyear. He was hilarious. As I, I love Patrick Warburton. I, yeah. I think he, not just because he's from New Jersey where I am, but just, you know, his, his, sense of his timing and in, in just the way yeah. it works actually i well, love him uh, and i love tim allen both it, it's funny about his timing because obviously patrick is a unique person yeah. um when they said oh we're gonna get tim allen gonna pay him a bunch of money he's gonna do the voice for your the video release of the buzz like your star command um it was all animated, mostly animated. What? Yeah, I think it was finished. So he had to basically ADR. He had to do the voice to picture. And Tim Allen was going crazy because he heard he knew how he would just do buzz. How he but would now do. he had he had Patrick Warburton in his ear with this whole different spacing of words and how to Very play good. things. So he goes, "What is with this guy?" <laughs> uh, you know, and it came out fine. It made for a good transition from movie to video to series. Um, but that was funny. And I got to be little aliens in the credit song where William Shatner sings to infinity and beyond and the little green men mm -hmm. uh, sing back up those the little green men are me. Oh, nice. Yeah. And in a personal note, it was like, I did those voices in the same spot where the a and it was literally two blocks up from my mom's house. So it was the same spot where a and Root Beers was that we used to walk to when I was a kid. I had my first deep-fried burrito there. What is this wonderful food? Uh, and, uh, you know, it had all been torn down. This new building at its place. And I realized I'm pretty much here. I should be drinking a root beer. Uh, but that was fun. Uh so that's an interesting circle to, to end back kind of in one of your childhood areas recording. You know. Oh, yeah. Back in Burbank. Yeah. Another, I, uh, I think we recorded the soundtrack to, especially our early shows, we actually got to do big orchestras. I think, was it Darkwing? That might have been recorded at the Evergreen Studios, at least one of the studios, which was... Um, which was just also 
a couple of blocks from my mom's house across the street from 31 Flavors, my first job. Uh, and it used to be the Magnolia Theater where I went and saw movies for 35 cents or whatever. Uh, and that had been a recording theater. So, yeah, my footsteps were all over <laughs> the same area from growing up in Burbank to, you know, finishing up my career at Disney. Yeah. You didn't have to travel too far. Yeah. So you finally got to do your your space program with Buzz Lightyear. Did any of the ideas from Mickey and the Space Pirates make their way to Buzz Lightyear? Uh, I always carry ideas, but right after Darkwing, I pitched a science fiction show that I really wanted to do. And everybody on staff liked it. Gary Kresses just didn't get it. He didn't understand the draw of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, months later, he explained how they had pitched a show using my artwork with a whole different storyline. And I said, that's just the Jetsons, uh, and which is exactly what Eisner and Katzenberg said. And they passed on it, but they used all my artwork. And I said, Gary, I did all that artwork on my own time at home. Yeah, now it's poisoned. I can't use it again to pitch. Uh, he goes, oh, sorry, but it didn't matter because from then on, my destiny was going to be tied to, you know, feature oh. spinoffs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that that had more of the ideas. And then Buzz Lightyear was a show that really Bob and Mark, uh, even more than Hercules, um, ran the story. And then that's when I said, as much as I love the guys, I, I said, I'm actually a storyteller. I mm-hmm. always run the story of my shows. And that's what I want to continue to do. And that's when they went off and did Kim Possible. And I did development. Did I do anything else after? Well, I did Team Atlantis, which we got three episodes out and put into a DVD. Yeah. Uh, and that was it after that. So. Did you have any big ideas for Team Atlantis? Anything like, oh, I, I can't wait to we're gonna work on this and oh yeah, take the story we there. We had, we had all sorts of ideas because it was like, well, I'm never gonna get to do Hellboy, so I'm gonna put all the ideas into this show. And Mike Vignola was helping us out with creature designs. Um, so we had all sorts of things, uh, but then as we got more and more notes it got to a point the writers were way ahead of the rest of the staff because mm-hmm. you know we're coming up with premises for show 40 we have outlines you know ready for the 20s and 30s there are scripts for the in the teens and the staff yeah. is just doing the you know 1 through 12 or something like that so and it got to a point where i actually said i don't know what show we're doing now because it had just we got ridiculous things that were just making it like every other show you don't remember growing up. Um, so chaotic. So yeah. there was, so there was tons that we wanted to do and could have done. In fact, the premise of the show originally was they each had part of the crystal and it had been set up in the movie that Kida who had the crystal was, I don't know, hundreds of years old or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that these guys would actually age. We could tell adventures in world war one world war two the 50s modern day we could have fun with that 
Yeah. And we were ultimately told, no, the time travel stuff is too confusing. It does. It's like, it's not time travel. They're just long lived. Right. Uh, and so that was one thing. But, you know, I understand simplifying it. We love the motif of it and all. And it was just the idea that once that crystal was energized at this underground, um, that energy, it was like a beaming energy like Tesla proposed uh, that all these artifacts that had been spread around the world by the Atlantean traders uh, and you know merchants um, would suddenly start working again. So you think it's a weird sculpture or an ancient vase. It turns out, no, it's a matter transporter. It's a, you know, it's all that, the idea that suddenly there's all this stuff that can be used for good or evil or just is dangerous because no one knows what it is. And it's suddenly activated. Uh, so that was the big adventure is kind of recovering all those artifacts and either deactivating them or recovering them. Um, so it, it was just, you know, it would have been a, a great, great show. But uh, sadly, uh, the staff had to be laid off on, on Friday the 13th. And oh, the of staff all was just the, the staff was just getting into the great scripts, you know, some of the best ones we had done. And they said, oh, this is going to be the best show ever. They were really pumped for it. And suddenly it you know, went away because the feature didn't perform. Yeah, because uh, it sounds like a fantastic show. I would have loved to watch a show like that. Oh, yeah, um, me too. Uh, it sounds great. Well, you never know. You never. I mean, it, it sounds reminiscent of some things that Marvel has done with uh, some of their stuff now. With the, the artifacts from, you know... Um, things spread out across the planet and having to recover and fix things. But I, I, I don't know. I think with the time, tra- the, not the time travel, but the progression through history. Uh, oh yeah. There's all sorts of things we could have done with that, but just, you know, just telling a big out and out adventure story. It was, it was kind of doomed from the start because we thought it was going to be on the new station called Toon Disney. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being on one Saturday morning. And it was like, we're doing kind of this big action adventure thing. And one Saturday morning is kind of Nickelodeon at the time. Yeah. It was Doug, yeah. It was Doug and Pepper Ann and, you know, recess, all fantastic shows, but aren't the natural lead ins to no different audience. Some stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, um, as soon as the movie didn't do well, it was the excuse for ABC to drop the show. And everybody said hands off and all of that. So, but again, the you know there was a misunderstanding from the top that the executive who worked so hard to sell the show was the one that once the show was going gave the worst notes. At one point, he said the famous line, "Why do we need Jeopardy? Because we had these monsters." And I said they provide the Jeopardy of the episode. Yeah. So why do we need Jeopardy? It's like we threatened to make that into T-shirts. It's like have you read anything about? writing drama movies anything so story arc you know tension you know, yeah climax and i'm basically he was the one who drew my career tv animation to a close and then went to features and fired john musker and ron clemens <laughs> and ron and john laster came back and said you don't fire your heritage and immediately brought those guys back you know um so uh, it was it was just a dark time in the empire. Yeah, concerned. but it would have been a, a really would have enjoyed the show. And then it turned out I got to do Hellboy, which was supposed to be 
at first a series turned into direct videos was going to be a whole series of direct videos but the company was sold to stars who said oh we don't want to put our money into original projects like this um so we did two wrote one or one additional one um and that was that but they were fun they were a yeah. lot of fun at least you got a little bit of it, but not not the whole thing. But you ended up on Hellboy, where you you wanted to. I mean, yeah. Was that a comic book that you? I mean, that came out well after you know your your years initially in the comic book area. Oh, but I had, when up? I came when I came back to TV or when I came to TV animation, the guy said, "Hey, do you want to come with us to the comic book store?" And I went, "Comic book store? What's that?" You know, and the mm-hmm. world had changed, and that was like a great time to get back into it because that's when Frank Miller's dark Knight came out, uh, Watchmen, uh, just some incredible Alan Moore swamp thing. There's just some incredible, uh, shift in comics being taken more seriously and just doing adventurous things. Um, so yeah, I, I knew Hellboy from the start. I had all the issues and was a huge fan was online as a fan. And, uh, at hellboy.com <laughs> and uh and i have friends who i made from that fandom who actually ended up staying at my house and and us going to san diego together or the hellboy premiere or whatever uh that i still am friends with today you know so yeah i was a true fan of that that character so now being I have able a to... bunch of original art on my wall you know from mike mignola and, and well, i see this i see a couple statues i can't see the art but yeah. um uh, yeah. uh, so to be able to work on that must have been fantastic. Uh, hopefully I won't knock anything over as I'm doing the pan. Okay, there. Yeah, this a little more. No point up. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, and on top, there's a right hand of doom. So, all right. Something's buzzy now. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I still hear you. Okay. We're still good. All right. I think I knocked out a. I must have knocked some wire or something because now I've got a feedback hum. Uh oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay as long as it's not coming through. No, I don't hear it. I don't hear it, so the, the audience won't. Um, too bad the audience can't see, won't be able to see that some amazing, amazing collection that you have there of, of this stuff. So to be a fan and to be also have be able to be part of that must have been, you know, just. Oh yeah, you know, very just, much so having your cake and eating it too really at, yeah at that well point. it's more than that i mean mike is a hold on a sec oh, i wasn't out of track yeah my mike is one of the most creative people on the planet and it was so great just bouncing ideas off of him and working with him um so that was you know an inspiration to me both on a creative level and for the the particular project um so yeah, that was like I say, the other highlight of my career was was the Hellboy movies because I got to write in a in a different way. Um, you always write for yourself in that, but but like with Darkwing, we wrote for ourselves, but you have to include the kids. Yeah, with Hellboy, it was like okay, we're not writing Scooby Doo. We're not if it's going to be a haunted house, we're not going to um, worry about saying oh scooby it's a haunted house no we're going to go into a house and then prove to you that it's haunted by um the way the characters react and all that mm-hmm. so you uh 
different so, limitations. I mean, that was, yeah, so, well, yeah, not as many limitations, but basically saying, let's do an animated horror movie, you know. Um, and I just really loved having that stuff staged out and things that we did in the artwork. I had great directors, Phil Weinstein and uh, Vic Cook, uh, both who had worked with me at Disney. You know, Vic worked on several of my shows. Um, so, you know, it was just, you know, just a great project, you know. That's Again, fantastic. would have liked bigger budget, well, <laughs> more time, we're, but weren't you always? Yeah, well, it was like the first two movies had to be overlapped, so there was no learning curve. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we wrote the third movie that never got made, it was like, okay, then we had a learning curve. It's like, okay, we know this sort of stuff doesn't work as well as this stuff. Let's make more of that. So the first movie was a kind of a tribute to um, Mike's short stories that he did with Hellboy that although they were all Japanese little short stories tied together uh, the second one was Hellboy's roots in vampires and werewolves and Central European uh, horror mythology and then the third one was to be the pulp adventure side of Hellboy the Nazis mad scientists heads in jars flying around cyber gorillas oh, uh, Lobster Johnson, it was like that possibly would have been the best one. And we kind of told our origin in Hellboy, which slightly tweaked, mm -hmm. you know, which characters are there and what and what they did. Um, no, that was that was great fun. You know, hopefully those would have been we should have done like seven of them. That would have been <laughs> fantastic. You never know. You never know when things may come back around. But well, um, it'll be somebody else these days. Yeah. <laughs> so. Of all those characters that you've gone to work through, worth you through your career and you know create or um, expand upon and, and whatnot, if you could go to say dinner or to that A and W root beer and sit down with one of them and just kick back and chew the fat, which one would it be? Sit back with with who? Sit back and chew <laughs> the fat. Just sit back and talk. With one of oh, your, one of your character, any of your fictional characters that you've created or worked with throughout the years. Oh, probably Hellboy would be the one who'd who'd have the most interesting stories, and um, you could actually have a conversation with, you know, having a conversation with Darkwing Duck, and Goslin would be more of a disaster about what Goslin would be getting into, and uh, you know, said so we'd. We'd start talking as long as it was about Darkwing, he'd be fine, you know. Uh, but while I'm trying to keep Darkwing calm, Gosling would be inside NW and playing with the hey, look what I can do with the soda fountain, you know. It's, you know, things cool. If I put this here, it goes up my nose and tastes like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, look, I can squirt it out of my nose if I put it here. So, uh, so yeah, that's, I mean crazy question but yeah those again there are downsides of of both hellboy yeah. you would hope you'd get through without something ectoplasmic coming up to attack him well yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah of course uh dad thank you so much uh, all right it's been, it's been a, fun it's been a pleasure and uh, again thank you for everything that you, you did contribute to to my upbringing um with the the disney afternoon and the series after that I'm still waiting for those to show up on Disney Plus, and hopefully one day we can watch Buzz Lightyear and Aladdin and, and those on there because my boys are big Aladdin fans. 
and just being able to only show them the the three uh, movies, as it were, um, they they always want more. So I, I well, I think you know, basically, I, I have no idea of why certain things were held. Uh, I know Laster wasn't a fan of of the Buzz Lightyear show, even though I mean I knew John and you know we had it started with Pixar animation, but in his mind the the show Buzz was based on was this big adventure show. And you see those little Buzz Lightyear short subjects at the beginning of some of his movies. And it's like, yeah, how long did it take you guys to conceive and and storyboard that four-minute sequence or whatever? And we have to do 22 minutes every week. You know, right. it's like, there's a, you know. That's so I, under- I understand his, his feelings, but... Uh, he's no longer at Disney, famously. Nope. So, uh, and Aladdin, it kind of surprised me that that it's not on there. So I have to assume sooner or later it'll it'll pop up because they always want to. It's not like they put everything they own on at once. They yeah. have to not only create new stuff, but they have to say, "Hey, look what we're pulling out of the vault." So I assume that stuff. There's no legal reason not to bring back, you know, stuff like that that they own 100 percent of. No, no, it, 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 and that's kind of been my theory is that it will get there eventually. It's, you know, yeah. you need to keep on putting new things on to keep people interested. Yeah. So again, can't thank, all be Hamilton. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been a blast. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for being on, uh, and, and sharing all these stories. All right. Well, let's, let's hope you, uh, cut it down to the good stuff. And, ah. uh, I don't know. Although normally, normally I would end by saying stay dangerous. And this time I will say stay safe. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. And you as well. Thank you. So long. Thank you again to the amazing Tad Stones for coming on and sharing all those amazing stories regarding Darkwing Duck, the Disney Afternoon, his Imagineering, and everything beyond that with the Disney animation and his journey outside of Disney animation. Thank you so much again. And uh, so what is some of your favorite work that Tad worked on? Was it, you know, Aladdin? Was it Hercules? Was it Buzz Lightyear? Darkwing Duck? Rescue Rangers? Let us know. Shout out on Facebook, put it in the comments, facebook.com slash Disney Marvel's podcast, or on our Facebook group, Disney, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Disney Marvel's podcast. You can also find us on the Twitter at Disney Marvel's, on Instagram at Disney Marvel's podcast. You can also email the show with your answers or suggestions, ideas for upcoming episodes, or just questions in general to Disney Marvel's at gmail.com. You can also leave a voice message through the Anchor app or website. Links to everything is in the show notes. I want to thank you for your time. Again, you know, 100, now 101 episodes into the show. It wouldn't be, if it, this show would not be anything if it wasn't for you and the time that you've invested in listening to me babble on for all these time, for all these episodes with, with friends, with guests, by myself, well, however it is, um, it, it means so much. I know how busy everyone's lives are, and the fact that you've spent all this time, any of this time, with me means a lot. If I could just ask you, as 
do all the time. Please just share out. Let people know about the show. If you know what people that are into Disney, hey, check out the Disney Marvel podcast. If you, you do, or you want, go on to iTunes, rate the show. That helps people find out about the show. I mean, we've been doing great five-star rating across the board. I, I, I am humbled by that. I, I you know, um, it leaves me speechless that the fact that the only rating that we've gotten from everybody so far is five stars. I, I, I am truly deeply honored by, by your gratitude. Uh, keep it going. Keep it going, though. And, um, you know, let people know about the shows this way. And don't forget to become a subscriber. And also consider becoming a premium subscriber to the show. You can do this over at anchor.fm slash disneymarvels slash support or you can find our Patreon page where you can get some cool little gifts. Or also to help the show, go to the Disney Marvel shop to get some Disney Marvel gear to wear around. Uh, wherever you want. If you're going to the parks, if you're just going to the grocery store, it, 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 I get a lot of compliments for my Disney Marvel stuff that I wear when I go grocery shopping. So might as well join the... Uh, Join in. Links to all that is also in the show notes. Whatever you're facing out there, all the difficulties, all the duress and uncertain times that we are in, you are not alone. Even though maybe sometimes it feels that way, you really are not alone. I believe in you. And you should believe in you too. You are strong enough. You are worth it. There is a light that's inside of you. Embrace that light. Grab hold. And it will lift you up and shine for the world to see how special and truly amazing you are and beautiful. Don't give up on yourself. These, this too shall pass. And you will get through this stronger than you've ever realized. Now I'd like to end this week's show with a quote from Walt Disney. We're all proud of the honors that many groups around the world have given us. And we've even more, we're even more proud that the public, whether in theaters, at Disneyland, or in their homes, continue to express its faith in the kind of family entertainment we produce. Again, that's Walt Disney. Thank you again for everyone for listening, and I'll see you next time.